that's not giving you extra rights. That's just solidifying the fact that you have rights to the exclusion of others. So this, all of these, when you're talking about IP, it's all about excluding others. It's not about giving you anything. So to that very point, it's protecting the competitive advantage that you have more so than trying to gain one. That's a great point. Welcome to GovCon Live. Each week, we'll be talking about gaining a competitive advantage through a deeper understanding of the law. I'm your host, John Williams, a partner with Polero Mazza. Today, we'll be talking to Cy Alba, one of my partners here at Polero Mazza, about data rights. This is the first episode in our multi-part series on gaining a competitive advantage through cyber, data, and personnel security. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and we're hoping to have some fun, too but we're not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances may change the advice that would apply. And the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Okay, disclaimer over, now let's have some fun. Sai, welcome to the podcast, GovCon Live. Good to have you. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I appreciate you having me on the show. Yeah, we uh, haven't been able to avoid each other for the entire time we've worked together at Polero Mazza. We came in at the same time together, didn't we? We, we did, yeah, just okay. a couple weeks apart. So tell us a little bit about your background and what do you do here at the firm? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a partner here in our government contracts group. And uh, as, as a, a lot of people know, government contracting is kind of a very broad topic area. And so we've a lot of us have kind of put ourselves into little buckets of specific expertise, if you will. And one of the things that I do and what we're going to talk about is some of the data rights issues and protecting your IP vis-a-vis uh, -vis the government and uh, more, more broadly protecting your IP with uh, your, either your employees or other companies, things of that nature. So what is your background with data rights? You know, I've always been really interested in technology. I've always been a big computer guy. And uh, very early on, started noticing that a lot of our clients and at the end of where I worked at my last firm, this 13 years ago, it's been a while, <laughs> um, that there's a lot of government contract-specific issues that come up because of the very specialized rules and regulations. And they've been changing over time, and they've, they've been drilling – people have been drilling down on them, uh, also because of the advent of – the internet and the growth of the internet and the growth of technology and the speed at which things become available, uh, it seems like it's become more and more of an issue. And really digging into that as an area of my interest and learning more and dealing with a lot more clients over the years, uh, it's just grown to be something that I think clients don't think enough about. And we're trying to serve that area of the government contracting community, especially with the small and mid-sized companies out there who really don't think about it till it's too late. Mm -hmm. And that, that's where I think this, this we're focusing on here and also just to educate people more broadly so that they don't come and talk to us or talk to whomever too late. And they gave away rights five years ago and they didn't even realize it. And now it's become something that's valuable and it's too late. So that's a common issue, isn't it, that clients tend to not want to call the lawyers until it's hit the fan. But if you wait that long, in your case, when we're talking about data rights, you may have already given away significant amount of your intellectual property. Let's start 101 level. When we say data rights, what do we mean? 
Yeah, so when you're talking about data rights in particular, somewhat of a misnomer because technical data has a very particular definition, which we don't need to necessarily get into here. But data rights more broadly is talking about data and also software and general IP issues. And I would include like patents in there, although technically they're in different parts of the FAR. But when you're talking about almost anything that is patentable, copyrightable, um, and also could be tr trademarked, so that's less of a concern most of the time. Um, but a good example of what we see and what can be problematic is individuals not understanding what certain terms of either prime contracts or subcontracts mean. And I've seen it most often in someone who's a small or mid-sized company dealing with a very large organization. They sign a boilerplate subcontract that says anything you develop under this contract is or subcontract is a work for hire and I own it and enter large business name here, right? And even if it's something that you brought to the table and you built yourself, like we had one client in particular that created this um, basically like a battery and they had this battery and they brought it to a large prime, the prime that this is great, we want to incorporate this into some super secret item that we couldn't know what it was or even talk to us about. And in the contract that they signed, it had one of those boilerplate works for hire clauses. And even though this was created 100% at their own expense and they brought it to the table, they weren't reading it, I don't think, and they just signed the contract. And this is years ago. Mm. And then when it came to us, they had already given the rights away to the large business and given the ownership away to the large business. And that was the main value that their company had. And they were thinking about going out, selling themselves, maybe. And when we looked at this, we said, this is a problem. Now, in that particular case, people didn't necessarily want to hear it. Or like, well, the prime, the large prime hasn't brought it up, so maybe nobody remembers. And people take that kind of track all the time. And you never know, sometimes if nobody cares or if the prime wasn't reading the contract or that's not what they meant, maybe you can negotiate it out. And there are ways to fix things, too, to go back, in that case, trying to negotiate different terms to sort of unwind that. And that's, that's allowable in that context. So some, some really important takeaways there. I mean, the, the importance of reading the boilerplate in the contract, that when you're developing, and I can't really relate to this because I can barely turn my out of office on, but if you develop a software, you wrote the code, that's your secret sauce, right? I mean, that's... What you're saying is the small business contractor or the sub, even if it's not a small business, the subcontractor that through their own effort and expense develops this software code or uh, their secret sauce, whatever it might be, you got to be really careful that the boilerplate in the contract with your prime contractor doesn't give that prime more rights to what you created than they're entitled to. So what do you? What should you be doing in a situation like that, and uh, to protect yourself better as a subcontractor that's really built something important that's a critical asset for your company? You've got to protect it. So how do you protect it? Yeah, and, and a lot of times, having a dialogue with the prime contractor goes a long way. Believe it or not, a lot of times when you see these types of clauses, that might not even be what they meant. It might be. I'm dealing with another case right now where it does seem like a l very large company did intend to put these things in there and maybe slip it through to 
steal, for lack of a better term, the software that was being developed in order to use it. But nine times out of 10, that's not what's happening. Nine times out of 10, you're dealing with some um, contracting officer or whatever you call it inside a prime contractor, these contracts managers. And they're just taking pieces from different contracts and putting them together. And they realize, oh, this is for software. This is our boilerplate for software. Stick it in and hand it to you or for technical data or whatever it happens to be. And they stick it in there. And if you raise it, bring it to their attention, say, hey, guys, wait a minute. This is either commercial software that I've developed and I'm going to sell it. Or even if it's non-commercial, I developed this with our R&D dollars. Uh, we're certainly willing to license it to you in a manner commensurate with what you need to give to the government. And nine times out of ten, they're fine with it. If they're not fine with it, that tells you something, right? If they're not fine with it, that means they probably did want to take the ownership of it or take some additional rights, which should signal to you that you're being cut out of the process. So don't be afraid to push back on what might just be a form agreement. It's a one-size-fits-all, somebody in the contracting shop at this large prime it's just popping these things out, these contracts out. They're not necessarily scrubbing every provision to make sure that it's appropriate for your situation. So you're saying don't be afraid to push back because maybe more often than not, they'll be willing to change the language. Exactly, and pay attention to hyperlinks in the large contracts as well because large primes a lot of times will have a hyperlink in there. They'll say all terms and conditions found at the below uh, are hereby incorporated by reference, and there'll be a hyperlink. You click on that hyperlink, it'll take you to some FTP site that will just have a bunch of entries on in the FTP server, and you open them up, and some of them have nothing to do with what you're doing. There might be an addendum for construction or an addendum for you know environmental remediation or something like that, and you're doing this software contract. And making sure that there's stuff in there that you're not agreeing to or you're not going to accidentally agree to and pointing it out to them. They should be willing to say, okay, well, no, that you're right. That doesn't apply. Sometimes they'll come back to you and say, no, you need to specifically tell me what things in there don't apply and why. And frankly, more times than not, like smaller companies or mid-sized companies are going to say, gosh, how much is that going to cost me to go through and figure that out? It's not worth it. That's that's a gamble. I think that's one of those things that people roll the dice on, and it's a business choice. Yeah, I mean, it is a gamble because you have to think about your rights in your own data as one of your most critical assets, right? And what are you doing to protect this very important asset? And the subcontract or the agreement with the with the government is one of the first lines of defense, right, to make sure that your your rights are protected. So can you talk a little bit – we've been focusing on – subcontracts, what about when you're contracting with the government? What are some of the issues that as a contractor you need to be aware of? If I have rights in data, whether that's software, I think that's probably our most common scenario, at least that's what comes to mind for me. I, I wrote the code for some special application. Uh, what do I need to be mindful of when I'm contracting with the federal government and trying to protect my data rights? No matter what, but especially with software, I think the question is, first, you need to ask yourself, is this commercial or is it non-commercial? Because there are completely different standards that apply to those two things. And I've seen issues where clients want to be extra careful, and so they, they want to put in all the non-commercial clauses 
into that, say, restrict the government's rights because there's different restrictions you can have. There's unlimited rights, which is sort of the default. So if, if you don't put the proper legends in a non-commercial software contract, the government gets unlimited rights in that. That means mm, they that can sounds, take it. That sounds like a lot. Like what unlimited, that's pretty broad. So what, what kind of rights do they get if they get unlimited rights? Yeah, it's basically everything except ownership. And ownership, the only thing ownership really lets you do that's not in unlimited rights is market and sell the software or whatever the data is in the commercial space, which the government doesn't care about. So meaning the government can take it, they can reproduce it, they can modify it, um, they can edit the, the source code itself, uh, they can put the source code in an RFP and put it out on the street for people to bid on. Uh, so that someone else can come in and modify your, your source code or change it or add to it. Any of those things they're allowed to do. That being said, because you still have ownership in that circumstance, another prime contractor, another private company coming in and bidding, even if your source code is out there for the whole public to see, those other companies are not allowed to use it in the private sector. They can use it for that federal contract that they're bidding on or modify it or change it for the government end user. But what they can't do is take it and sell it or modify it or adapt it into one of their own products. Because if they do, assuming you didn't give ownership to the government, which I guess we can get into in a second, then you could sue that other party in either state or federal court, depending, for infringement. So if you give the government unrestricted rights in non-commercial software... There may not be a commercial application. I mean, there it, presumably there hasn't been to that point if it's non-commercial. And if the government, as you were saying, geez, they can do basically whatever they want with it short of selling it in the commercial space, which they're not going to do anyway, isn't that going to potentially put a real damper on your ability to market your secret sauce, your code or whatever it is to other federal government agencies potentially? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why if the government paid for something 100% at the time of development, then they get to take unlimited rights in, in that software. That's the general rule. But the important thing there is about development, and that's, that's like sort of a timestamp. So when was something developed? And in the case of software, it's basically when it's compilable and executable, and it runs in a manner consistent with what it was in, built for, like what your initial intention was. So if you can compile the software and it runs, and if your software was like a random number generator, and so when you compile it and you hit the button and it spits out a random number, that's doing what you programmed the software to do. And the second the code is written in a way that once compiled operates the way it's supposed to, that's development. That's whenever it's developed. So if the government paid for something and let's say a week later, after the contract's over, you pour in some more R&D dollars and you fix the code and now it works, that's yours. Because it wasn't developed at government expense. It was developed because that's that timestamp again. It was developed when you were paying for it. The opposite is also true, though. And this is what the opposite is what gets people in trouble. They maybe get everything 80% of the way in this secret sauce, this software, and they just need some funding. They don't get private funding. They don't go to family and friends. They start pitching it to the federal government because maybe that's, that's their main customer. The federal government loves it, and they pick it up. 
Now, there's different ways the government can help pay or fund development of, of technical data or software or other IP. Some specific agreements are more explicit about the government taking rights in it, like with NASA or the Air Force has a program. But normally, it's just you pitching your idea to just a general federal agency. They like it. They say, sure, we'll help pay for it. And then there'll be the general non-commercial uh, far, non-commercial software FAR clause that'll be in there. And it defaults to if we paid for it at the time of development, we get unlimited rights. Mm-hmm. And so let's say you needed another $10,000 to push this across the finish line. Don't get that money from the federal government because if it's not developed, if you can't compile the software and run it for your intended purpose and then you do that under the government contract, the government is entitled to unlimited rights generally. So, wow. So, they might get unlimited rights in the whole kit and caboodle even if what they paid for was like the final mile essentially. Exactly. Because it wasn't quote-unquote developed So it sounds like there's a really important line that gets drawn or needs to be drawn on private expense versus what the government's paying for. Is that right? Yeah, because if you don't, at least in the DOD context, there's there's a separate type of license rights called government purpose rights. That's not in the FAR. It's only in the the DFARs. But basically what that is is if the private expense, let's say code again, right? If you have source code and you've, coded a bunch of things. So line lines one through 10,000, you did all at private expense. And then it's not lines 10,001 to 20,000 that was done at public expense, but it's all intermingled and jumbled together and you can't keep track of it. So it's mixed funding at that point. That's where the government could take what they call government purpose rights, which is effectively a type of restricted rights that the government gets to use this software for some specific purpose inside the government writ large. But then after a certain amount of time, say usually it's five years, it then becomes unlimited rights. Mm. And that's to give you, because it was mixed funding, they allow you to have some limitations for a period of time, but then the government gets the benefit later. And the idea is that that's after it might be as valuable to you. So it gives you some, it's almost like patents and they give you some period of exclusivity, but it doesn't last forever Okay. because it's not in the public good. So is that a typical spot where we would get involved? That that's really part of the value add that you bring to a client that has a commercial software that's looking to now start selling it to the government? I kind of wanted to get a sense of what does a typical solution look like for a firm that's been in the commercial space and says, you know, we want to get, we've got a real opportunity to sell this to a federal agency, but this is our first foray into contracting with the federal government. So, Cy Alba, can you write in and give us some advice? What's a, what's a typical solution look like for a firm in that situation? Yeah, so if you have a commercial license agreement that you've been using already, taking that license agreement, going through it, removing clauses that are contrary to to federal law or, where possible, modifying them to make them commensurate with federal law, then that's that's exactly what we would come in and do in those sorts sorts of circumstances. If you're a new company and you're developing the software for the first time and it has commercial applications, but you're also – maybe your first foray into actually selling this is with the federal government, then creating a more general commercial license agreement – 
alongside the modified version for the government for a particular contract. We would do both of those things. So then you have something in hand that you can use going forward. Yet at the same time, you have this modified version for this particular contract that fits the federal law. Okay, great. So, I mean, I think that's obviously you need to do those things uh, if you're going to be selling software to the federal government. You've got to have, or in the commercial space, you've got to have a good license. So, um, and you mentioned at the outset about a client of yours that went through a transaction and that they had a hard time because it turned out the buyer, in looking at uh, what they were buying, realized that maybe the the client of ours didn't own the secret sauce that they want or didn't have all the rights that the buyer was looking for them to have. So I think you've been doing a lot of mergers and acquisitions transactions, haven't you? And between contractors, I mean, that's a unique area in and of itself, isn't it? Yeah, we end up doing a lot of those things. And this is just one part of diligence that sometimes get overlooked or people assume. Yeah, that, that, that's what I wanted to get a sense of. Is this like one of the more common misconceptions of this just overlooked that we don't need to pay as much attention to this because we're, we're in there writing the code. That's what we're good at. And if it strikes gold, other people are going to want to buy it. But they're not just buying the functionality of the software, right? They're, they'd be looking to understand like how can they market this? What are they what are they buying? Right? I mean, so tell me, take us behind the curtain a little bit for a buyer that is in, in the federal space that thinks that company's got a neat application. And if we bought them, we have a real opportunity to to sell that to other to our current federal customers. But what's that buyer going to be scrutinizing in terms of uh, the software application and the marketability of it. Yeah, so what that buyer is really going to look at, if you're in the federal space, first and foremost, they're going to go through your contracts, right? And they're your proposals and what, what you gave in to make sure that everything you've done is consistent with the claim that you've made that you not only have ownership of this, but depending on what you told them, they might think that the government only has certain restricted rights in it. Because if, if you're telling them, well, I don't know, we made this all by ourselves, this was completely developed by us, and then we started selling it to the government, that's great if that's all true. But then if in your first contract six years ago you sold it to the federal government and there were certain clauses in there – and by the way, I've seen clauses in contracts that are not part of the FAR – and arguably contrary to law, be in contracts that say anything you provide to the government is property of the government or the government hereby takes all rights and title in anything delivered under this contract. If you have a clause like that and you've signed it and then you've delivered this item to the government, you could, depending on the facts, have given the ownership to the government at that point. And then that would mean you don't even own the code to sell. The government owns it. You, and I've even seen clauses that say something like you'll get a license to use it. Like we own it. We, the government, own the software. But you'll get a fully paid worldwide license to use this, something like that, which is sort of the reverse of, of unlimited rights. So you have some semblance of unlimited rights. 
But that means you can't market it and you can't sell it because you don't own it. I mean, it makes sense to me. You can't sell something you don't own. So the right. buyer, I mean, what's that going to do? To That obviously affects their valuation of your company or even their willingness to buy you, I would imagine. Yeah, and I've seen in this particular circumstance, that was basically the only thing the company had that was worth anything. So the deal just fell through? It just fell apart. because, And that's where it was, well, we could go back and try to unwind some of these things. If it's six years ago and it's given away... The other thing some people do, and if the buyer is somewhat unsophisticated or if you're open about it and they want to roll the dice, they might just really reduce it and say, okay, look, we'll buy you. And maybe if it's gone so far and nobody's raised an issue, it was a misunderstanding, we'll take that risk. Because what's the likelihood the government is actually going to come in and try to sue us or stop us from marketing this, this software? Um, but there's still the risk out there. And you have to pay attention. Yeah. So, I mean, and our focus here is on competitive advantage, right? I mean, that's this series of podcasts and the event that we're doing on June 5th is all geared around helping contractors gain a competitive advantage through cybersecurity, data security, and personnel security. So, from a data rights perspective, what you just described, I think, is a real key takeaway in terms of competitive advantage in the M&A context, but also competitive advantage in selling your secret sauce to the federal government, right? If you've given the rights away, doesn't that potentially undercut your competitive advantage? Yeah, and I'd say there, there's a few things there. Like, First, if you've given away to the government, that basically means you don't have it anymore. And if you've given ownership away because of these non-FAR, like non-regulatory clauses, then you're just completely out of luck almost because you've given away the ownership. But even if you've accidentally given away unlimited rights, if your primary buyer is the government and, or customer, I should say, and the buyer of your company or investors who are looking to give you capital are looking to that customer for growth, if it's discovered that you've given unlimited rights and that that customer can then take this software you developed and take the source code, give it to a competitor, have them modify it, run it, uh, change it, edit it, whatever, patch it, everything under the sun, you're superfluous at that point. And th- there, there's no need to keep you in, in the loop. Um, the other thing I've seen a lot of times is you'll have an owner that will have developed something, maybe even before the company started or like, in their garage and things like that. They might actually own that IP and their company is then started and is running for, say, 20 years. And no one has ever taken the time to sit down and say, well, wait a minute, who actually owns this? Is it the individual human being owner or is it the company? And have you, if it's the individual, have you assigned that ownership to the company? And sometimes you'll even have something where the company goes out and gets the copyright and maybe trademarks and the, the company has those in process or has already done it, but maybe there there's an incongruity there because the owner never assigned the ownership and title. So the company might not have even had the ability to get those copyrights. And that just creates messiness. And buyers don't like confusion and messiness. And also, it's it could be a problem for you as well because if the owner dies, if your owner dies or something and their their spouse or someone else steps in or kids or whatever, they might have a different view on this. And they may say, well, gold mine. I don't want this company to get this. 
my mom or dad created this, and this is mine. And now your whole company that might have grown out of this could be out of luck, or at the very least, get into protracted litigation that nobody would want over this over this issue. And that right there, once you know there's this dispute, your competitive advantage has just been eviscerated because you don't have this anymore. Right. So it's really, you know, uh, there's opportunities to gain a competitive advantage by being mindful and proactive about where the ownership lies and uh, for your code or your, I keep calling it secret sauce, who owns it? Let's tighten that up. How's it licensed? What kind of rights are we giving to people that are using it? Understanding where the lines are drawn, private expense, government expense, which level of rights should the party have? It's really an opportunity to gain a competitive advantage, but maybe even more so protecting against losing a competitive advantage, right? When you're talking about whether it's a patent or a copyright or a trademark, that's not giving you extra rights. That's just solidifying the fact that you have rights to the exclusion of others. So this, all of these, when you're talking about IP, it's all about excluding others. It's not about giving you anything. So to that very point, it's protecting the competitive advantage that you have more so than trying to gain one. That's a great point. Sai, this has been great. We appreciate your time as we're aiming towards our event on June 5th uh, for how contractors can gain a competitive advantage through cyber data and personnel security. I think what you've talked about today regarding data rights and the the things that contractors need to watch out for in their contracts with prime contractors, in their contracts with the federal government, in their license agreements, you really have to be careful. I think a key takeaway for me is you got to be careful with the boilerplate in the contracts. You need to be careful with uh, special provisions that might be, in my view, snuck into a contract, not typical clauses. I think what you know, one of the real key takeaways is how this affects M&A transactions. And that's what we're going to be talking about in June. Is that is that where, you know, what what's your sort of final takeaway for contractors? Yeah, and I think paying special attention to the ownership, making sure the right party has ownership of these things protecting it ze- zealously. And it's it's not something that I'm saying there's like this boogeyman you to be aware of. It's just knowledge and reading it and be, paying attention to what's, what's in the contracts and understanding what you need to do to protect the ownership, not giving it away. Once you're sure that the ownership is under control, making sure you're only giving license rights purposefully to your customers, whether it's the federal government or third parties. Licensing exactly what you mean to license, nothing more, nothing less, just what you intended and making it as clear as possible and getting a meeting of the minds between the parties. And when it comes to the FAR and DFAR, simply understanding what you're supposed to be doing at the outset when you're putting in your proposal, in your contracts, and in whatever license agreements might attach to it. Great, Sai. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate you joining us here in GovCon Live. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about how cyber, data, and personnel security can impact your business, we encourage you to check out our upcoming event on gaining a competitive edge through cyber, data, and personnel security. We're going to bring together perspectives from leading government contracting practitioners to talk about how cyber, supply chain risk management, 
data rights, and personnel security are shaping the competitive landscape for federal prime contracts and subcontracts. Insights and strategies will be shared around how cyber is affecting award decisions and teaming arrangements, what you need to do to protect your data rights, the increasing impact of cybersecurity in mergers and acquisitions, and the importance of developing a robust insider threat program. The event will be on June 5th in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. To register or learn more about the event, please view the show notes or visit us on the web at poleromazza.com. Thank you for listening to GovCon Live. This podcast was produced by Chris Godwin at Maximum Flavor Media, Max Hertenstein at 3 Volt Sound, and Frederick Nesfield. Music credits go to bensound.com, and I've been your host, John Williams. Please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts, and check out our event on gaining a competitive edge through cyber, data, and personnel security in the show notes or at poleromazza.com.